United States. The death toll in Florida is expected to reach 19,000 by November. However, if 95% of people in the U.S. wore masks while in public spaces, the same model predicts that approximately 40,000 lives nationwide would be saved. In weather today, right now in D.C., it's 85 degrees and cloudy. In New York, 76 and cloudy. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. This is a public service announcement with guitar. And you have the right to call into this show. This is your rights at work, Chris Garlock Ed Smith. You can call us 202-588-0893. You got questions about your rights at work, your rights on the job, your rights off the job. It's a little bit of an interesting situation we're in right now. Your rights at work, again, 202-588-0893. Ed Smith, how the heck are you? Hey, good afternoon, Chris. Good to see you. You got like a nice little jersey on, nice little shirt on there. And too bad the audience doesn't see it. Uh, good to be back uh, for another hopefully great week at your rights at work. Absolutely. And again, you can, uh, if you've got questions on your rights on the job, the number to call 202-588-0893. Hey, a little bit later, we've got a cool interactive tool for building power. It's a contract map. We're going to have our old friend Joe McCartan is going to be on with uh, Sarah Michael Bus to talk about that. But first, we had a big win in, of all places, and I know she knows what I'm talking about, Virginia, <laughs> the formerly red, then purple, and now, dare I say it, trending blue. Let's hope. Doris Krauss-Mays, Doris Krauss-Mays is the president of Virginia AFL-CIO. We call it, they call it the state fed. And Doris, it's so good to have you with us, and congratulations. Really big win for you guys yesterday. Uh, yes, it was, and thank you all so much for inviting me. I mean, here in Virginia, uh, you know, we've always been, like, on the bottom when it comes to workers, uh, you know, like uh, 51, uh, 50, 51, uh, <laughs> even on everything, but now we're, like, the Number first. one, number one. <laughs> so, uh so it feels really good, but it is a big win for the workers uh, here in Virginia, uh, you know, and it's also like the, you know, it's amazing how like we're the first state uh, that has done this. Other states have done executive orders, but in terms of passing a standard and stuff, we're the first. So and, it's wonderful. And we should clarify what we're talking about here is called an emergency temporary workplace standard to protect workers from COVID-19. Uh, so I think you need to spell out, you know, A, what exactly that is. And then, uh, you know, the legislature didn't wake up one morning and just decided to do this out of the goodness of their own hearts, I'm thinking. No, uh, actually, uh, to the governor's credit, uh, he done a directive, you know, uh, asking the uh, Department of Labor and Industry and the Safety and Health Codes boards to really look at this uh, in ways of getting standards, you know, to protect workers. 
Uh, I think uh, if you wanted to like put it like in a nutshell, mm-hmm. uh, all of this means that OSHA is the floor. Okay. And you can't just say, oh, we're doing the CDC guidelines, which CDC guidelines are weaker. Uh, not only are they weaker, uh, but they change so frequently. Like, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Day they say this, and the okay. next day they say that. Uh, and now I think it's even more important since the uh, President Trump now wants everything going to, you know, Health and Human Services Department, not even going to CDC. So what in the world would that mean? Uh-huh. So uh, every place should be passing a standard right now in order to do that. So, so just and what we're talking about here, these are, uh, what would I say, a strong practical standards that require state employees to improve workplace <laughs> safety and conditions based on clear science-driven measures. They got to provide yes. risk training. And also allow workers the clear and enforceable right to be free from retaliation and discrimination for exercising the right to demand a safe workplace. So let's sort of break that down. And uh, Ed Smith, of course, with the D.C. nurses, I'm sure you're going to want to jump in here. But let's start with this first one about requiring uh, employers to improve uh, workplace safety and training. Yeah, uh, so they have to have a plan first. Uh, So I think that is like really, really key. Uh, but they do have to train workers uh, in the risk of what to do, uh, train in terms of making sure that you have the right equipment uh, and you're prepared uh, for that. Um, and you have to let the workers know which plan you're doing and, and actually do the training and it be enforceable. So, this is really, really good for workers to really know that they're receiving some training that's based on science and not just a whim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got another question, but let me yield to Ed, who I'm sure has questions or comments. Well, first of all, thanks for coming on and uh, big congratulations. Um, our union has sought um, these changes uh statewide but we've also asked osha to adopt um uh precautionary standards and one great thing um is joe biden who we endorsed uh, this past week has agreed that he supports uh, our union's efforts in uh making uh osha rules on uh covid19 um in a, in a, to, to effectuate uh, some rule changes uh and i agree that the fact that um, Donald Trump's administration is trying to, uh, I guess, divest CDC of its guidance is, is unprecedented. Um, what I'm concerned about as we look to head to the fall and to have students come into classes in some places, how do the um, new uh how does the new regulations deal with uh reopening of schools if at all i know in the district we're very concerned about that yeah so it's going to apply to schools uh and educational staff actually the same they have to have a plan as well and they also have to uh train staff uh on how everything is done so that is a really really key thing here too uh, I think we focus a lot on 
a, like a workplace thinking, you know, it's a plan or, or something like that when this actually will apply to that as well. So everyone, they're going to have to have a plan and they're going to have to make sure that, you know, staff has access, you know, to like, uh, mask, uh, hand sanitizers. If they don't have that. There's got to be some type of access in order to keep them safe. So that is good for uh, them as well. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking with Doris Krauss May. She's president of the Virginia AFL CIO. Uh, and she's celebrating and, and telling us about this uh, uh, bill that was just passed, I think, yesterday, right, Doris? The yeah. Emergency Temporary yeah. Workplace Standards. Uh, my question, this kind of follows on what Ed was just asking about, and this is this point about uh, allowing workers the clear and enforceable right to be free from retaliation and discrimination from exercising their right to demand a safe workplace. First of all, that implies uh, that there are problems around that. Can you can you talk yes. about what, 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 what are the issues? <laughs> problems? How could there be problems with right. people complaining Just. about their work safety? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely problems. I mean, when you look at all of the cases uh, that workers are facing here in Virginia and the increase, I mean, just in the last seven days, Virginia has had an increase of over 6,400 cases of people, you know, uh, that's contracted the virus. Uh-huh. But yeah, so as a worker, especially uh you know, this really all started in the meat and poultry industry right. uh, with workers uh, who, you know, uh, were fearful and rightfully so, you know, in terms of not having safe working conditions. And, you know, uh, management has a tendency to come down really, really hard on people uh, and just ask, just tell them to get back out there. So uh, this yeah. is really, really good. I, I want to jump in here, Chris, as well. Um, our national union has uh, had several nurses that are union members that um, were suspended or even fired for bringing up problems in personal uh, protection, protective equipment. Um, we've been successfully we've been successful at getting their jobs back. Fortunately, here in the district, that hasn't happened, and we've had a number of nurses, as you know, Chris to speak to the media quite uh-huh. frequently and uh-huh. we've we've been fortunate we've been fortunate that they have not had retaliation but that doesn't mean that management still won't try it and i think by having a bill that passes that it it, it you know not only gives you legal protections and the afl then can file grievances or file court challenges but it also sends a real deterrent message to the employer that the government is standing behind that. So would you want to comment on that a little bit, Doris? Yeah. So I would just say uh, with that, it's, uh, there's a mechanism that will be in place in terms for workers, you know, to report and go to. Uh, this is will be uh, Department of Labor and Industry uh, and VOSH, uh, the Virginia Occupational Safety and Health. You know, they have the companies have to report you know, uh, and notification uh, to these departments, to the Department of Health and Virginia OSHA, and they have to address the possible COVID uh, virus uh, outbreaks in their facilities. So that right there 
uh, really, really helps if there has to be clear reporting uh, that's done so then uh, the agencies can step in. And there's also, you know, there's uh, it's always a good thing to just have uh, a little bit of financial, uh, a little fee and fine, you know, that, you know, if you're uh, found guilty uh, and not doing the right things, you know, we uh, there's a lot of good employers out there that are doing the right thing, okay? But there's a lot that's not. Uh, so we really want to make sure you know, that everyone is protected uh, and everything. But yeah, there'll be a, there'll be a fee to pay. Uh, and if you continue doing it, that money, it just keeps coming out. So you're going to pay more. But a little stick to well, go with the carrot, right? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. So let me, let me jump in. Let me jump in again, Chris. I think that is a really good point and some more teeth for enforcement power. One of the things we've had Carl Racine, the uh, attorney general on uh, from D.C. on our station, talking about wage theft. And uh, there's penalties uh, for uh, employers that uh, commit wage theft. And um, the district is going after them pretty strongly. And one of his big points is we don't want it to be a race to the bottom. We want to lift up all businesses. We think that the vast majority of businesses are doing the right thing, but the ones that come in here and do wage theft make it more enticing for some people to no longer follow the law. And uh, I think by having uh, teeth in on fines, it's going to help the big, help the companies that actually are doing the right thing, right. trying to make sure that they ensure safety, trying to make sure that they don't retaliate against workers who report legitimate problems. And because, you know, Doris, I know that you, me, Chris, none of us have seen this before. So there are a lot of issues when you go back to the planning stage about how to make a workplace safe. There's a lot of things coming out that are confusing and a lot of details. So it's not about necessarily us fighting all the time. We want the opportunity to engage in intelligent discussions with employers to make sure that all are safe uh, so that we get beyond this. Yeah, and I think it's also to what really helps with all of this. It's uh, it's very important to keep in mind that now the workers know which plan uh, and what the standards are. Uh, so that is, uh, you know, knowledge is always power. Uh, so I think that, you know, that helps a lot. The other thing, too, is uh, workers... It's not just about the virus being in the workplace because workers, even though they're at work, when they leave work, they go home. They go out into the community. Uh Uh, They go to other stores and even they go to grocery stores. So we have to really keep in mind that by protecting workers and making sure that they're safe at work, we're also protecting the community that they live in. And we're also helping businesses uh, in the sense to make sure uh, that they're safe because we cannot have a huge resurgence here. Hey, Doris, I know you've got another interview to get to, but before you go, just uh, remind folks of what the Virginia AFL-CIO is and does. So, uh, uh, the Virginia AFL-CIO, uh, you know, we're the state labor organization. Uh, you know, we have over uh, 400 uh, locals that are affiliated with us. 
And like most state feds, you know, it's mobilizing, organizing, uh, legislative work, and as well as political. Uh, so uh, we're that voice uh, on a large scale and bringing everybody together. And I think this win is the proof of what can happen when everybody works together. And it also is proof that elections matter. Yes, they and do. And who you have you know, in your state house, uh, the governor's mansion, and the White House, it makes a difference. So. Well, we've uh, we spent a lot of time over there in Northern Virginia because, obviously, in Maryland and D.C., we're usually in pretty good shape uh, with with uh, with folks. So, uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on as the fall campaign heats up. I really appreciate. Oh, Congratulations no again on a great win. Thanks so much for being with us, Doris Krauss Mays. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Ed, too. Bye. Thank you, Doris. Right. Take care. Doris Krauss Mays, she's the president of the Virginia AFL-CIO, and we're just talking about the historic uh, first state to pass an emergency temporary workplace standards uh, around protecting workers from COVID-19. And uh, if I had given you uh, a list of states where that would would uh, would have happened, I don't think Virginia would even be on that list for you, right? No, and you know what's exciting is that it really it, it this is a precursor for labor in Virginia to get stronger, mm. and I'm really excited about this. And one of the things I, I didn't get a chance to ask Doris is, okay, now that now that we've won this battle and got the governor with us, and and okay, how are we going to use this as an organizing tool? And I think that there's going to be a lot more organizing in Virginia to get. Uh, workers unionized and this is they are going to be a tremendous ally moving forward but you're right there's no way people five years ago three years ago would have thought virginia would have been leading in the state but you know there's a lot of uh there's a great soccer team in, in english premier uh, league that went from that <laughs> to first about four years ago leicester city so uh it can happen and let's hope that they stay blue up there down there. All right. 202-588-0893. Chris Garlock and Ed Smith, this is your rights at work. So if you've got questions about your rights on the job, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, this would be the number to call and we will get you the answers. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to have a little public enemy sure. for you. Thanks to Ed Smith. And then again, yeah. uh, just after the half, we're going to talk about a cool new interactive tool for building power is called the contract map. But uh, in the meantime, uh, some other good news. Uh, Ed, I don't know if you heard about this. The uh, Our friends at Local 400, UFCW Local 400, uh, most of their workers are at, you know, your Giant, your Safeway. Uh, they're also at Kroger. And uh, Kroger, they just got a, uh, what you would know in the business as a TA, which stands for? Tentative agreement. There you go. Tentative agreement. That's uh, uh, here's the interesting I, I, thing. One for one on the quiz. I know. I tell you, <laughs> you can't. You got to get up pretty early in the morning to fool Ed Smith, you know. But here's here's the fascinating thing about this tentative agreement, and you'll never guess this in a million years. So I'm even going to put you under the scope on this one. They had to negotiate online on Zoom. Can you? So, so let me yeah. just. And, and we really got to get some of these guys on to talk about this because. Take people inside the room for a contract negotiation. I've only been in a few times um, uh, on that. Uh, and we've got a call. We're going to go to call in just a second, so hold on. But, but Ed Smith, there is so much that happens in contract negotiations that is 
uh, not on paper, not, you know, it's in the looks, it's in, I mean, there's a tension in the room, right? Yeah, and you know, I can, I'd be happy to talk in much more detail on that, but <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually in Zoom negotiations with one of our large Oh, wow, okay. As we speak, and, and we've done a couple of sessions. I let's if there's time later today, okay. maybe five six minutes. Yeah, yeah. Go in much more detail. But yes, it is extremely different. Yeah, face to face. There's just many many differences. Love to hear about. It. All right, let's go to the phones. Uh, Mike Nacella says they got a call lined up. You are on your rights to work. What's your name? Where you come from? And what's your question or comment? My name is go Deborah ahead. Washington. My name is Deborah hey, De- Washington. Hey Deborah. And I'm a hi. I'm a nurse at United Medical Center, and I just wanted to call in during um, a break uh, just to um, have your listeners, if they would. Um, we know that uh, they're planning on um, going forward with the new hospital that um, we're making our last-ditch effort so that the nurses would be included in the plan for the new hospital because at this time the nurses are not being recognized um, and it's not like they're going to be able to just automatically go um, when the new hospital is built. They're planning on there's going to be a lot of different things that the nurses will have to go through in order to obtain their jobs, um, to retain their jobs. So um, this was just an effort on my part to um, ask your callers, ask your listeners, if they could just make some calls, um, council members of Ward 8, who would be Mr. Trayon White, that, you know, just in support of the nurses and um, when they go to the new hospital, just all of the different things, just make sure that the nurses are included. Deborah, thanks so much for your call. Let me ask you, what kind, of, what kind of nurse are you? I'm a telemetry nurse on a med surge unit at United so, Medical Center. At UMC, right. So so what? explain to me, just from, from, from your point of view, you're, you're down on the ground, you're in the hospitals, um, what, what kind of just sort of day-to-day concerns would the, would the staff of a hospital have? I mean, just from a, a layman's point of view, it just seems like the local hospital scene – which had been, you know, relatively stable for a long time, has there just been so many hospitals that are closing or changing or moving? And I just wonder how that affects the, the healthcare professionals on a day-to-day level, if you, if you don't mind saying. Um, just day-to-day, like you say, change, and it's a lot of change, and sometimes the change is very quick. Um, some changes are gradual, and, you know, we're involved in the change. Um, we're involved with some of the decision-making and, you know, the change, the transition goes well. But then there are just abrupt changes and, you know, things that we really have no input in. And, you know, we're just told this is what it is and this is what it's, the way it's going to be. And, of course, when you, you know, being a nurse and having worked in the system and doing the work, you know, that's, kind of um, disheartening for us to know that, you know, our opinions, are our the work that we've done, our opinions and everything, it just doesn't matter. It just seems like, you know, it's a one-way thing. They're just going to 
It's just what they say it is. We have no input. So, yeah, that is very disheartening for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For myself, I mean, anyway. yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Ed Smith, you got any questions or comments for, for Deborah? Well, I know Deborah personally, um, and Deborah has actually, um, there's been a couple of uh, news articles that she's been um, featured in. One was just recently a, a USA Today article de- uh, describing her daily duties. So Deborah has been at um, United Medical Center, formerly uh, Greater Southeast Community Hospital, for I think over 30 years. Deborah goes in and dons her full protective gear every day for 12 hours. Wow. When she comes back, when she comes back from work, she has to do all the things to personally clean, make sure she's clean mm. before she can hug her six, before she can hug her six year old granddaughter. <laughs> oh my it's goodness gracious! So wow. this is a personal matter. I mean, we forget that healthcare workers. We know we're proud of them, and we know that they do a great job every day. But then we forget they have personal lives. And one of Deborah's colleagues also has to care for a sick mother. And that particular colleague works in the ER, emergency room. So, Deborah, I I applaud you. I don't really have a question for you aside from just, you know, applauding you and and caring for you every day and hoping that you stay healthy. But, uh, Chris, this just goes to show that we call our nurses heroes, on the on one breath, and then the the district council and the district government on the other breath says, "Well, they're heroes, but they're not heroes enough to work at a new hospital with an employer that doesn't want them." Right. Oh, at, right. Yeah. No, yes. it's it's uh, so amazing, and and that's such an amazing story, uh, Deborah, to hear about what you have to go through. Uh, you know, on a daily, and I think that people, and I know when I've talked to some of the folks who work in supermarkets, it's the same thing. And I think, you know, I, I go to the supermarket, I'm in there for maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour or whatever. But, you know, I think, man, you know, I go see a checkout clerk and they're there, you know, all day and, you, and you're there for a shift and having to be geared up for all day. It's, it's just, it's, these are hard jobs normally that seem even tougher now, right? Yes, this is true. Very much so. Um, so anyway, that was just my comment. And, you know, again, if your listeners could just help support us here at United Medical, um, with the, you know, the plans for the new hospital, just ask that we, the nurses be included in those plans as well. So thank you all for letting me be on and, um, have a good evening. Thank you, Deborah. Really appreciate that. Get back to work. Don't get in trouble. Right, right. That's where so I'm Chris, going. Break over. Break over. All right. Thanks, Dad. Take care. Um, Chris, just as, a, a, as an aside, they are um, the, the D.C. Council is voting on Tuesday in a final reading on legislation, which will have the new hospital um, up and running by 2024 with DCNA and other labor organizations, including basically all of labor, asking the council uh, amend the law to uh, include, uh, to, to require the, the new employer to sit down with the unions that represent uh, nurses and other healthcare workers at United Medical Center to work out what's called a labor peace agreement. And basically all that is, is that you got to sit down and talk to us about uh, what, what organizing efforts can be, can be accomplished in the, in the new hospital. And, um, 
we don't think it's a, a mate. We don't think it's something that should be controversial, but it has become controversial. And uh, we believe it's not just about healthcare workers. This is an affront on all of labor. You've got nurses and healthcare workers that have worked and spent their entire careers at United Medical Center and now are being told that you have to uh, undergo new training um, overseen by the new boss, who is not very union friendly, before you can even get offered a job at the new place. So um, we are asking uh, uh, the audience to call up Council Member Trayon White and Chairman Phil Mendelson, and I think that uh, probably you will have that uh, information on dclabor.org fairly soon for the phone numbers. But I appreciate you giving us a few minutes and, and letting Debbie air out her uh, discussion. Hey, it's a call-in show, so anybody that calls in two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three, you know the uh, you know if it's about if it's about work, it's about workers, it's about your rights. You are going to get on the air, uh, and, and you know while while uh, Brother Nacella is queuing up our music for the half, um, one of the things that that I want to point out, you were just referring to it, uh, Ed Smith, is that. It's it's not like, and Deborah was talking about. It, it's not like you all are talking about the nurses taking over the hospital, right? I mean, I don't know. Somebody may be talking about that, but that's not what you guys are talking. You guys are not talking about taking over the hospital. You're not talking about you know a major culture change, right? What you're saying is, what you're asking for is input into this process. What you're asking for essentially is a seat at the table, not to take over the table and take over the room. And I think it's an important point because frankly, you know, uh, there are some discussions going on around the country. Uh, where folks are starting to, you know, because they're denied at the seat at the table, because they're denied at voice at work, people are starting to say, well, you know, the heck with it. <laughs> you know, if you ain't going to give us a seat at the table, maybe we do need to start having that conversation. Do you want to, you know, react to that? We can talk more coming out the other side. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why you had massive teacher strikes in the, yes. in, in yes. the recent past. I think that's why you have a protest uh, movement. Um, and, uh, you know, it links. Our last guest, Doris, um, that was about having a seat at the table with employers to say, let's work together to devise a plan to make um, these uh, uh, workplace uh, uh, workplaces safe and healthy. And that's really what unions do and what our union does. We are engaged in caring for patients. We're also engaged in representing our workers. But that is very important to us, and we think it's important at a new hospital to have a seat at the table to talk to management about unionization and about what can happen uh, in terms of protecting the care of the patients. And that's Ed Smith. You're listening to Your Rights at Work. A little bit of music when we come back. An interactive tool for building power. It's a map. That's right. It's a map. We'll tell you more about it after this music.
All right, hey. we're back. That was uh, just a quick. T- well, actually, you should talk about. It. You chose it. <laughs> That's NWA, Fight the Power. Um, actually, I think it's Public you know, Enemy. Public Enemy, bro. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I said NWA. It's public enemy. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't talk about it. Um, but that that song that that song's twenty some odd years. Um, Still works. And if you Still remember, works. Well, if you remember Tipper Gore, the vice president, 1989, bro. Al Gore. 1989. <laughs> and shortly after that song came out, Tipper Gore uh, was basically trying to censor all all that type of music um and uh it's just it's interesting that we're kind of still in the same um time frame met uh, uh mind frame i don't know but um i thought it was a, a fun song and an appropriate song for uh, today absolutely i was watching the video and just uh it, it was really it was it's fascinating how much of this uh is still absolutely working all this time yeah. later all right uh, next up, we talked about it earlier. Um, it's got a new tool for building power, and it's a map. I love maps, and I especially love online maps. Um, and this is uh, from, well, we're going to have Joe McCartan and Sarah Michaelbust uh, from the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown to uh, fill us in on this. So, uh, first of all, Joe and Sarah, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. Yes, thanks for having us. Good to see you both and to hear you both. Um, So tell me uh, about this map. What is it? How did it come to be? How are folks going to use it? Uh, A lot to cover. (laughs) Um, Let me start. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the background for how it came to be, and then I'll turn it over to Sarah, who actually did so much of the work that helped create this, um, this tool. So this is a tool that grows out of our project called Bargaining for the Common Good. Uh, The Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown uh, joins with two other uh, institutions in the country, the Center for Innovation and Worker Organization at Rutgers and the Action Center for Race and the Economy uh, in hosting a network nationally of unions and community organizations called Bargaining for the Common Good. And we are working together to try to reinvent bargaining to allow workers to be able to deal with the, the problems that uh, that they're facing in 21st century capitalism and now, especially in this COVID crisis. One of them being housing. Um, the housing crisis in this country is getting worse and worse. COVID is actually making that on steroids because so many uh, people don't have the ability to pay rent now. Um, And there is a movement nationally to cancel rent in response to this. And we're trying to promote alliances between workers and community organizations, unions and community groups to deal with uh, problems like the housing crisis. And that's what bargaining for the common good is about. And what we have decided to do with this map is to look into the future, the next few years, at the contracts that are going to be coming up around the country um, and to map them so that workers and community groups can anticipate the kind of fights that are coming up ahead and begin to coordinate with each other in locations and then across the country 
um, to, to empower themselves to, to come together to try to transform bargaining. So with that, I, I turn it to Sarah to just say something about the map itself and, and, and more about the idea behind it. Yeah, so the first thing that I want to say, I'm the research director with Bargaining for the Common Good, the network with the Calmanovitz Initiative, also working with the Center for Innovation and Work Organization at Rutgers and ACRE, the Action Center on Race and the Economy. Um, and we had an amazing team of folks, most of whom were volunteering their time, that helped put this map together. So I just wanted to thank them, in particular GIS, GIS specialist um, Becky Schneider, um, who spent hundreds of hours volunteering her time to help make this map a reality. Um, and we were really excited about how many folks from across the country, union members, local unions, international unions, and others um, were willing to contribute data to it. We have over 1,500 contracts um, across multiple different uh, industries and sectors. And the most amazing thing, I think, is when we've shown, talked about the idea and now shown the map to people, how excited organizers and activists on the ground are about what it shows in terms of opportunities across the country. Um, so we're super, it's amazing, right, to look at where all unions are across the country and then also think about contracts and the concept of bargaining for the common good where we'll, we can use the contract process as a key moment as campaigners, right, and thinking about how we can continue to build power for workers and community together um, and be at the table with some of the most powerful folks in the world um, and think about what that's going to look like, not just for that group of workers, but for whole geographies and communities um, across the country and how we might be able to use this. So, and, you know, people can visually see it and imagine it. Um, so I think that's the, the best part about it for me and for, for what we've heard from folks across the country. So why don't you go ahead and actually, uh, just for me and Ed's benefit, if you can share the screen, because I want you to kind of give us a tour through there. But I also, maybe I just go back to Joe for a second, because, y you know, you're, you're sort of assuming, you know, I get these calls, you know, people will call me up at the Metro Council, uh, and they're going into contract negotiations. Hopefully they're going to them a year from now, although frankly, usually I get these calls, you know, a week before they go into negotiations. And they're like, hey, you know, do you know anybody else in, you know, X industry? Uh, they sort of assume that the council has contracts, which we don't. I mean, people do not give us their contracts. Um, and But people sort of assume that there's this database of contracts that they can then take a look at and, and, and uh, you know, and that'll help them in their negotiations. And they're always sort of shocked to find out that that doesn't exist. So can you talk a little bit about why that is and, and, just sort of set up why this is such an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, and let me jump in. Yeah. Let me Go jump ahead. in real quick. Uh, yeah. As uh, somebody who's actually it, negotiating it, it, a contract right now, right, Ed? Right. Well, I, I, I'm always negotiating a contract, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but, um, you know, what's interesting is when I first started work, I worked for an organization called National Association of Government Employees, which was a large affiliate of the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. And back in the early 90s, SEIU actually did have a database of contracts, as did our union. So when you wanted to work a health safety article, for example, you could grab 15, 20 contracts with maybe better language than yours. And then over over time, it just 
somehow dissipated. And I've always wondered this as well. So I just wanted to jump in with that little factoid. Uh, that's a really good point, Ed. And some unions have maintained these databases internally. But I think as you point out in your own experience, even that has declined in recent years. I think historically you can say that collective bargaining is one of the most decentralized activities in the labor movement. Um, it's often conducted by local unions uh, with individual employers. Um, and, you know, in many cases without coordination. Now there have been pattern bargaining in the auto industry and and, and other kinds of, um, you know, semi-sectoral bargaining that have existed at different times in our history. But for the most part, the labor movement has been very decentralized in how it's approached collective bargaining. And astonishingly, there's been no, you know, national that's open source and accessible to to all workers and, and activists who, who want to seek out coordinating strategies with their colleagues. And uh, in the case of you, Ed, what you're describing, you were looking within the SEIU database at one point, but what, what about if you're uh, with SEIU, but you're dealing with an employer that is also organized by other unions around the country? Why wouldn't you want to coordinate with them? And where could you go to do that? Um, prior to this, there was no real um, tool that could help people do this and that could help community allies. And this is the important thing to link together with, with unions uh, um, and, and identifying some of the same targets. So Sarah can now tell us a little bit about how this works. Yeah, she's showing us this and it's a map of the whole, uh, whole United States. It's, it's uh, you know, speckled with, uh, with dots. And uh, this is usually when I'm looking at these, it has to do with COVID spread. So I'm very happy looking at, at a map that actually is something good for for, uh, for working folks. But uh, it's got a big concentration on the West Coast. It's got a huge concentration in the Northeast uh, and then across the Midwest. And then no surprise, it's pretty thin in the South. And then it uh, it gets pretty thick again in Florida. Now I'm assuming two things, and correct me if I'm wrong. One is obviously this tracks union density, uh, and then secondly, I, I I would guess it just you know was this a sort of a passive thing where people were sending stuff into you, or or were you actually going? I mean, how how did you how did you get hold of all these contracts? Yeah, so it was both. We definitely, over the last six months, um, reached out to a lot of folks um, across the labor movement um, and other movements and encouraged people to share their contracts with us, the information. We collected about 10 to 15 categories of information for each contract, if those were available. And some of them we got in like large chunks from different um, unions or local folks or you know, whole variety of people. And we also did some of our own research. We don't have a ton of capacity for that, but trying to look at what's available out there as well. And we recognize that this is, although, as you're saying, it does definitely sort of reflect what we in the movement see as like the common sense of where there would be high concentrations. It's not necessarily comprehensive, right? We do have 5,500 contracts. We believe that they cover about 5 million workers. Um, and when we're looking at, you know, the AFL at 12.5 million folks, that's not an insignificant number, but um, we still want to continue to be collecting them. We have a form um, on our website to be able to to get more information and are continuing to do that. Now, um, so, yeah, go ahead. 
No, what I'm seeing here is uh, what you're showing us right now. You've got contract uh, by expiration year and city for the next couple of years and then also uh, statewide. So I'm assuming that one of the things that would be useful for that, because this is another thing that people uh, around here, they haven't. I know that uh, in San Francisco, there's been some work done around this, but there's really been no coordination uh, with with folks uh, that are contracts that are expiring around the same time. Um, how, how might that be useful? And, and Joe, I think you kind of hinted at it in talking about working with community allies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we talk about um, in conjunction with the map as part of the overall tool that we put together, different campaigns that have developed in geographies and, and sectors of the economy, right? And so we think about higher ed, um, we also think about particular issues like housing, as Joe was referencing, um, but like a city, right? And the opportunity to look across multiple industries and in a particular geography and think about some of the issues that are impacting workers and workers as community members, right? Because we often talk about, oh, it's union members and members that are community organizations. And the point we make a lot with bargaining for the common good is there's actually a literal overlap between who those folks are and all of us are both community members and workers and really encouraging folks, you know, say in a city like Dallas or you're looking at LA or San Francisco to be thinking not just we could line up for a particular employer, all of our contracts at, a, at the same time but also in an industry which we're more familiar with talking about, but also in a particular geography to fight for issues that are really relevant for all the folks in that geography, right? And and this map shows that there's already a fair amount of natural alignment, right? And thinking about where that is, if there's a few months difference in a particular you know year, knowing that, and we've referenced kind of that, it's probably 18 months ahead of time was ideally, especially if you're going to do bargaining for the common good work, that you're getting prepared, right? And we've um, noted, and you can filter here and just see contracts for a particular year. And red is, um, and this is just for the city ones and the statewide ones are still showing up and there are less of those. But there's a really big concentration in 2022 across the entire country, hmm. but in particular cities as well, right? And does that create an opportunity to identify some common good demands across geographies, in particular geographies and and industries, and think about um, how folks could work together to to push forward those things? Because common good campaigns have really been about furthering long-term work, movement work that's been happening on the ground, on the community, on the labor side, and using the contract process and bargaining as a, a inflection point for you know trying to get some more wins so to speak let me just uh, reintroduce you we're talking uh with joe mccartan and sarah uh, michael bust uh, they're with the kalmanovitz initiative for labor and the working poor we're talking about a brand new tool it's an interactive uh map and i love maps and w- what's been really interesting about these interactive maps is they turn out uh, a map is almost I mean, it's correct. I mean, I'm looking at a map. It's a map of the country, you know, and it, and it definitely shows you where these contracts are expiring. But it's so much more than a map. I mean, a map just it's almost to me inadequate to I can imagine just going diving right into this uh, and, and just and I, I guess one of the things I'm wondering is 
I'm assuming that you you thought about ways that this could be used, but I'm assuming that people are probably going to start using this in all kinds of ways that that you yeah. hadn't planned on it, and and are probably hoping for that, right? Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's interesting, um, Chris. You you referenced early in the discussion that when you look at this map first, maybe the first thing that comes to mind are the recent maps we've been seeing seeing of COVID hotspots. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and, you know, historically, um, the spread of labor movements kind of mimics, you might say, the spread of a virus. Um, mm-hmm. There's a transmissibility factor, human to human transmission. As things happen in places, they inspire things to happen in other places. And, you know, the idea behind this map is to give people the tools to be able to make things happen in different locations by being able to identify their natural partners. And by doing that, um, to initiate a process that, you know, obviously is beyond uh, our control and we don't try to control it. It would come from what people in locations need and want and how they begin to inspire each other through their their activities. Uh, Ed? I mean, as somebody who's negotiating a contract right now, I'm curious, you know, looking at this tool, what are, what are things that, that you see as an organizer slash negotiator? Well, I think, you know, I want to uh, take the uh, lens back out a little bit and look at it from a, a larger example. This is, gives people the opportunity, and, and to say it in layman's words, uh, I, I will know when three, four, five, six other unions have contracts that expire around the same time that mine does in the healthcare industry, but there might be some common ground for public sector workers. And um, along with that, uh, there might be some Black Lives Matters issues that we can join together on. And I think the idea is to have a common campaign uh, building through union strength and the power that a union has during contract negotiations. So for the audience, I think that's um, uh, the important point to get out of this, that this is a tool for organizers and negotiators to utilize to help identify other other um, uh, allies with similar issues and in, in building strategies around a contract campaign. I think a lot of people don't know that a contract campaign is an ability to organize and just get your issues out in the public if necessary. Hey, I, uh, I have to apologize. We have a caller, caller and I didn't see uh, uh, Mike waving at me. So let's, let's get our caller in here. Hey, you're on your rights at work. Sorry for the delay. Go ahead, please. Or not. All right. <laughs> I guess uh, <laughs> that's my fault. Um, yeah, back back to Sarah. Uh, just looking up. Oh, nope, she is back. All right, she is back. All right, go ahead. You're you're back. You're on your rights at work. Thanks for holding on. I appreciate that. Hi, my name is Roberta, and I work at UNC. And I was just calling to try to encourage everyone to call Trayvon White to let them know that the workers also demand, or not demand, but deserve a fair shake with this new hospital that they're building at Saint Elizabeth. We've been there through everything, especially most recently with this COVID thing. And it's so unfair to just throw us out on the street, you know, basically after this hospital is being built. Got 
message received and uh, a Trey, we, we may need to get Trayvon on the show, Ed. What do you think? Yes, uh, Trayvon White should be on the show, and uh, hopefully he'll support us, and, and we're asking him to introduce that amendment for us. Thank you, uh, Ms. L- uh, Roberta, for calling. Thanks, Roberta. Yeah. appreciate that. All right. Uh, Sarah, back to you. I'm just looking at this map. You're kind of showing us around. What are some other cool things uh, that folks might find when, when they're poking around on this online map? Yeah, so I just pulled up the detailed version so y'all could see it. Um, and, you know, it, this has a lot more. The The one that's publicly available has the International Union, the year um, that the contract expires, and the industry subsector. But we encourage folks that are organizers and strategists that really want to get in the weeds um, on the data that we have to request access to detailed maps and also to reach out to us individually. We do have a spreadsheet, right, of all of these contracts and we can, that's sortable and everything else that um, we really want to encourage folks to be able to use it, right? And if you have the detailed information, you have the local union, the international, the year that it expires, number of members. We only have that data for about probably 30% of the contracts, but for uh-huh. the ones that we do, and also recognizing that for during COVID, right, the member numbers have changed a lot for pretty much every single union. But relative size is important, right? And this gives you a sense of relative size. Then we also have employer or employers. Um, We've categorized them as public or private sector, the industry sector, and we've got about 15 different of those, and the city and county um, and state and zip code, if that's relevant. And for contracts that are in multiple locations, we've located them in in all of the places where they're relevant and included that same data. That way, from an organizing perspective, you're able to do that. We also visually created a map where you can sort by industry sector, right? And you can see all the industry sectors we have and by international unions. So you can come in here and by year. So you can come in here um, and using visually be able to kind of see where the data is and where there's concentrations um, on all of those different ways. And so for someone who's really into research, but also an organizer, this is incredibly helpful. And it was designed to be used from that perspective, right? And to really help people, um, as I was saying, that are planning for contracts that have been doing this kind of work for a long time and see what the opportunities are. A great tool. We are about out of time. What's a website where folks can find that and other cool stuff? Bargainingforthecommongood.org. Perfect. Thank you so much, Joe McCartan, Sarah Michael Bust, uh, Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and of course, Bargaining for the Working Good. Keep up the great work. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ed. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's just about going to do it for this week's edition of Your Rights at Work. You can always find out more about the local labor movement at dclabor.org. Big thanks, as always, to our fabulous engineer, Mike Nastella, keeping us up and running and, and getting all our segues and all that good stuff. Really appreciate that. Uh, Michael, stay safe down there, going down there to the station all the time. We really, uh, it's a, it's a tough job. So can't wait to, uh, we're all back in the studio together. Uh, and Ed Smith, it's really good to uh, see and hear you, my brother. We are out of here. Talk to you all next week. All right. This is a public service announcement with guitar.
For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Askia Mohammed. Here are some headlines. The United States continues to shatter coronavirus records, with 41 states recording increasing cases of COVID-19. More than 67,000 new cases were reported Wednesday, nearly tying the previous daily record. The official U.S. death toll is now over 137,000. In Houston, the Army deployed hundreds of medical personnel to set up a COVID-19 ward in United Memorial Medical Center as intensive care units filled to capacity. Texas Congress member Sheila Jackson Lee toured the hospital. Whenever you enlist the United States military for assistance, you are at a peak crisis period. I think that is important for everyone who thinks this is going away, COVID-19, anyone who thinks we're at the end of it. The Houston Independent School District said it will start the school year with at least six weeks of online classes with a tentative plan to open classrooms in late October. In Florida, confirmed coronavirus cases topped 300,000, even as Disney World completed a phased reopening of its Orlando theme parks. In Miami, hospitals have run out of regular intensive care beds, with new patients moved into converted ICUs. Governor Ron DeSantis said he was mobilizing 1,000 medical workers to fill critical staffing shortages. In Georgia, where the official COVID-19 death toll passed 3,000 this week, Governor Brian Kemp issued an executive order avoiding local mask ordinances. Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, who was the first mayor in Georgia to mandate masks, tweeted in response, It is officially official. Governor Kemp does not give a damn about us. End quote. Earlier Wednesday, Kemp greeted Donald Trump on the tarmac as the president arrived at Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta. Both Trump and Kemp wore no masks as they met, though the Georgia governor quickly put his back on. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who's in self-isolation with COVID-19, said Trump broke the law by violating her executive order requiring face coverings in public. Another 2.4 million workers applied for unemployment benefits last week, marking the 17th week in a row that claims have been more than double the worst week of the Great Recession. 1.5 million applied for regular state benefits, while another nine-tenths of a million applied for federal pandemic unemployment assistance. An extra $600 in benefits is set to expire next week, potentially costing the economy another five million jobs when unemployment is already at record highs. More than 36 million workers are on unemployment benefits or have recently applied. In Louisville, Kentucky, civil rights groups are calling on prosecutors to drop felony charges against 87 people who held a peaceful sit-in protest outside the home of Attorney General Daniel Cameron. The demonstrators were demanding the arrest and prosecution of the officers who killed Breonna Taylor, a black Louisville resident who was shot inside her home in March. Among those arrested were the president of the Minneapolis NAACP, Houston Texans wide receiver Kenny Stills, and Women's March co-founder Linda Sarsour. Trump on Wednesday unilaterally rolled back the 50-year-old National Environmental Policy Act, 
speeding up approval for federal projects like pipelines, highways, and waste incinerators. Environmental groups immediately promised legal challenges. In a statement Greenpeace USA said, the Trump administration